Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is our text today. Go ahead and find a Bible if you can and find Genesis 37. There's some Black Pew Bibles in front of you. You can use those if you would like. Today we're picking back up our study of the book of Genesis that we started in the fall of 2021, I think. And we will conclude, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday this April. Amen. <laughs> Hopefully that was a amen. I can't wait for I can't wait for Easter. <laughs> These last 14 chapters. Oh, and by the way, pray for this. Jared and I are thinking, praying about what's next on the preaching schedule. Uh, we're leaning towards and I really and we really want to do a study of 1 John after Genesis. So be praying about that. I've been thinking and reading 1 John a whole lot lately, and it is stirring me up like crazy in all the right kind of ways. <laughs> Uh-oh, amen. Genesis 37 through 50. That's 14 chapters that close out this book, the first book of the Bible. Arguably, I really think you could make the case that this is the most important book of the Bible. We talked about this way at the beginning. Genesis 1 through 3, without those chapters in particular, we don't know who made us, how we got here, how anything got here, and what's wrong with everything that is here, including us. And of course, then, as we move through Genesis, what God is doing to fix everything that is wrong. His plan of redemption, namely being unfolded first in Genesis 3 through the promise of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then the promises to Abraham and his descendants who will bless the whole world. <clears throat> so we come to this section of arguably the most important book of the Bible. And these 14 chapters are all about one man, more or less all about one man, Joseph. Joseph. Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the next to youngest, just ahead of his brother Benjamin, both of them were born to Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. More on that later. And so Joseph occupies the longest section in the most important book in the Bible. Moses gives more time to Joseph's story than any of these other notable characters we've met, like Adam and Eve, or Noah, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob. Joseph, of all people, gets 14 chapters in this opening book of the entire Bible. And then the remarkable thing is that in the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, we hardly ever hear about him again. What's up with that? More on that later. Like later is in the next few months. So just shelve that away. But these 14 chapters are about Joseph. And, and the pattern of what, you're gonna, what we're going to see in these chapters is all over the Bible, even if not explicitly stated. So there's a spoiler alert for you. So we're coming to this last section, Joseph's story. And as we enter this last section, we will see both today and in the weeks to come that this is yet another example of how Genesis is a book filled with familial strife. Familial strife, strife within the family. And this is good news for people like us 
who come from families with familial strife. Now, maybe your family is just perfect and everything is great and there's never conflict or disagreement or pain or harm. Praise the Lord if that's you, but I don't think it is because I'm, I'm not sure any of us have that story. So it's good news for people like us when we read the first book of the Bible and we find story after story after story after story of familial strife. It helps us remember that we aren't alone and that there's nothing new under the sun. There was strife between Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and now in Genesis 37, we're going to see strife between brother and brothers, or brother against brothers, namely Joseph against his brothers, or his brothers against Joseph. Now Genesis 37 through 39, these first three chapters of this last section, introduce Joseph to us, but they introduce Joseph to us by contrasting him with his brothers. He's contrasted with his brothers in general here in chapter 37, as we'll see today. And then next week, he's contrasted with Judah in particular, and the tragic story of Judah and Tamar. But Moses brings this contrast out most clearly in chapter 39, so that's two weeks away, with the incident of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Moses is at pains to show us at the beginning of Joseph's narrative that Joseph is not like his brothers. He's not like those other men in his family. Moses wants us to see. Joseph's not perfect, okay. He's not the Messiah. He's not Christ. He's not God. But he wants us to see that Joseph, unlike his brothers and fathers, is a good man a godly man and a righteous man. <clears throat> the main point of this text that we'll look at today, Genesis 37, is this. Joseph is a righteous man who, quote-unquote, dies, more on that in a minute, who, quote-unquote, dies only to rise. Only to rise. You might say that's the main point of all of these chapters, but that's going to be where we start here today as well. Joseph is a righteous man who, quote unquote, dies only to rise. We're going to break this chapter down into two sections. Number one, we'll see dreaming Joseph, verses 1 through 11. Dreaming Joseph, 1 through 11. And then number two, scheming brothers. Scheming brothers, verses 12 through 36. Dreaming Joseph and scheming brothers. Number one, dreaming Joseph, verses 1 through 11, Genesis 37, verse 1. <coughs> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him 
and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when it was told to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Dreaming Joseph. Now I've said that Joseph is a righteous man contrasted to his brothers, compared to his brothers. But the first couple of verses of this chapter make us wonder what kind of man he really is. Well, first of all, he's a young man. It says in verse 2, he's 17 years old. And who of us wants our, our lifelong character to be judged at age 17? Not me, not this guy, nor 27, for that matter, 37. <laughs> he's 17 years old. A boy, it says in verse 2. So he's a lot of growing up to do, no doubt. And then we read that he... <clears throat> brings a bad report, verse 2, he brings a bad report of his brothers to their father, to Jacob. So we're like, okay, this kid, this boy is a tattletale. That's all he is. He's the next to youngest, telling on his big brothers to make them look bad and get them in trouble. So how should we understand Moses' introduction of Joseph? Well, I want to make some broad comments about that, and then we'll zero in to more parts of this text in just a moment. We need to remember that throughout Genesis, Moses has repeatedly designated which child is the chosen one in the line of descent. Which child is the seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of the serpent? And it's no different here with Joseph. In the broad structure of the book, we see at the very beginning of Genesis that there's the story of Adam and Eve who have Cain, their firstborn son, and as they have Cain, or uh, Eve is pregnant with Cain, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And it really sounds like she's looking for the seed of the woman who will triumph over the seed of the serpent. She's looking for the seed of the woman. But then shortly after that, of course, there's blood on the ground and blood on that son, Cain's hands, because he murdered Abel, his brother. And the next, Cain, excuse me, Adam and Eve, Rejoice over the birth of their next son, Seth. So that's the beginning of Genesis. But then fast forward here towards the end of Genesis. In the Joseph narrative at the end of the book, there's another child who, <clears throat> whose brothers report a son's death, quote-unquote death. Of course, the son isn't actually dead. He's put in a pit, but comes out of the pit alive. We'll see that in a minute. Then he's going to rise up over to reign, <clears throat> rise up to reign over the nations and bless all the peoples of the earth through his wise provision <clears throat> during a famine. In other words, though our introduction to Joseph may sound like he's nothing but a, 
a tattletale, an immature boy. What Moses is doing is actually setting him apart as the seed of the woman who'll die and rise, anticipating, suggesting, of course, a resurrection. He's contrasting him as a righteous one compared to the unrighteous ones, his brothers. Perhaps this resurrected one, we'll talk about this more in a little bit, is the seed of the woman who'll triumph over the seed of the servant. So what kind of man is Joseph? Or young man, we should say. What kind of young man is Joseph? Well, he's more than just a tattletale. Yes, he tells on his brothers. And he doesn't tell us exactly why. So I would suggest we give Joseph the benefit of the doubt. And as we'll learn in just a few minutes, Joseph's brothers are scumbags, more or less. So they probably needed to be told on for something. <laughs> so perhaps this telling on his brothers is actually an indication of his righteousness, not his, not his immaturity, not his self-righteousness. But there's more that, more that Moses is saying here to tell us what kind of man Joseph is. He tells us about this robe, and he tells us about his dreams. His robe and his dreams start to let us know what kind of man Joseph is. The robe. Verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe. He made him a robe of many colors. Now this robe is related to his dreams. I'll show you why in a second. But that phrase, robe of many colors, is used only one other time in the Hebrew Bible, 2 Samuel 13, 18, and it refers to a garment that was worn by one of King David's, uh, King David's daughters, making it a royal garment. Your, your footnote may even say that this is a robe with long sleeves. That's the technical translation of the phrase, a robe with long sleeves. So you know the, the play, Joseph and the you know, Technicolor Dreamcoat, well... Maybe it had many colors, maybe it didn't. We don't know for sure. And if it was just merely a robe with long sleeves, that was very important because think of it back in that day. If you wore a robe with long sleeves, that means you weren't outside working with your hands because if you were, you wouldn't have a robe with long sleeves on. That would get in the way. It would be cumbersome. So robes with long sleeves were reserved for people who lived in luxury or in palaces, royal people. That's why it's used of King David's daughter. Someone who wore this type of robe had a royal vocation. They're not out in the field doing manual labor. And interestingly, it says in verse 2, Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So what is this picture that Moses is starting to paint? Joseph is a shepherd with a robe with long sleeves. Let's summarize it this way. A shepherd king? A shepherd king, perhaps? Now, did Jacob have all of that in his mind? I don't know. But Moses saw something important there, important enough to include these details. Joseph is portrayed by Moses as a shepherd king. Verse 3, it says that Jacob favorites him because he's the son of his old age. That phrase, son of his old age, connects Joseph back to Isaac because that phrase was used earlier to refer to Isaac's exact, exact phrase. So this phrase is also Moses' way of imprinting Joseph with an Isaac-like identity. 
as the child, in other words, the chosen seed who will carry God's plan forward. Again, as I said earlier, Moses at pains, is at pains throughout Genesis to designate which child is the chosen seed. And this kind of language is indication of that here. Like Isaac, Jacob loves one of his sons more than the others. It says that so plainly. I mean, don't you love it when you don't really have to work hard to interpret the Bible? Verse 3, now Israel, also known as Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. And it says, because he was the son of his old age. So Isaac loved one of his sons for a superficial reason. It says that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Well, here Jacob loves Joseph because he's the son of his old age. It'd be like me saying, Elisha, you can earmuffs if you want, because this is not true, actually. But you know what, Lydia? I was older when I had you, so therefore you're my favorite. Not true. <laughs> but you, you see the, the fallacy. It's fallacious thinking. It's illogical. Okay, I was older when I had Lydia. Okay, and? <laughs> and? <laughs> like that has anything to do with how I should relate to that particular child. Favoritism is wrong and evil and twisted and has lots of consequences in Abraham's family, generational consequences, and in many of our family. If you'd like to think more about this, I spent several minutes on this topic in the sermon on Genesis 7, excuse me, 27. Genesis 27, you can look that up on our website. I'll just say one or two quick things here, though. Favoring one child like Jacob does here <clears throat> over other children does nothing but harm all the children, even the one favored, and harm the marriage. You might have noticed the language of hatred. Jacob favors Joseph. And then what do the brothers say? Or what does it say about the brothers? They hate him. It says it three times. They hate him. They hate him. They hate him. This sin of favoritism started with Abraham, then Isaac, now Jacob. It's true in Abraham's family. It may be true in yours. It affects, again, relationships between siblings, and it affects relationship between siblings and parents, parents and siblings, and husbands and wives. So on that note, I would encourage any parent in the room that if you have children, which if you're a parent, you have children. <laughs> so if you have children... <laughs> My head is full of mucus right now. Please, please bear with me. Please bear with me. If you have children, please work hard to love them all well. One of the best ways to do that is to love your spouse really well. Some have said it this way. This is not new to me by any means. But the thing your kids need most is for you to love your spouse. Period. You're like, well, I provide. Well, I have this home for them and this food and this, you know, all this education. I have all this, you know. What they need the most is for you to love your spouse. Marriages that aren't growing steadily healthier are fertile soil for favoritism. Because when a husband or a wife doesn't find that one flesh type connection with their spouse, they will start to look at 
look for it somewhere else, and often that somewhere else is right under their roof with another human in their family, a son or daughter. When this kind of favoritism springs up, when this sin springs up, its shoots will start to grow and spread over our families for generations. Now, as this narrative of Joseph's life will show us, God redeems everything broken and sinful in his people's lives. So this sin of favoritism works out for his glory and for the good of his people. doesn't make it right, but it does mean that God is in the business of redeeming every broken thing in our families. Amen? Amen. So Joseph is the favorite one, the favored one. His brothers hate him. They hate him because of that, but then he has these two dreams and they hate him even more. Why are Joseph's dreams important? He has two dreams, verse 7 and then verse 9. Why are these dreams important? Well, these dreams aren't like some of the dreams earlier in Genesis, um, like that dream where Jacob dreamed of a staircase to heaven with the angels ascending and descending, ascending and descending in chapter 28 where the Lord spoke, spoke directly to Jacob. In this dream, or these dreams, there isn't any direct dialogue from the Lord to Joseph. It's just a dream. Now later we're going to learn that these were from the Lord, but that's not said here. The brothers interpret the dream rightly in verse 8. So the first dream is that there's these sheaves in the field, and then Joseph says, My sheaf arises and stands upright, and then these other sheaves gather around his sheaf and bow down to that sheaf. Now, his brothers in verse 8 say, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? They recognize that that dream is a kingly dream. When you bow down to someone, what is that someone? That is a royal person, someone of authority and honor. That's not lost on these brothers. Then the next dream continues that same theme. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream, told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, 11 brothers, 11 stars, 11 brothers are bowing down to me. Now, if, if, if the sun and the moon and stars are bowing down, if objects of creation are bowing down to someone, who is that someone? God. Does that mean Joseph's God? No, Joseph's not God. But there's a, an authority there. There's a kingly, royal, divine authority that then these brothers are in the dream bowing down to. Only the king of creation would command creation to bow down to him. Now remember that both Abraham in chapter 17 and Jacob in chapter 35 have been promised that kings will come from their line. So when we read... To summarize, when we read about Joseph's coat, we just think of it as the coat of many colors, okay? I'm trying to correct some of that today. It's more than just a colorful coat, all right? It's a royal coat. It's long sleeves. No one else wore coats like this except people in palaces. So when we hear about Joseph's coat and when we hear Joseph's dreams, we need to think in kingly terms. And we need to remember that Abraham and Jacob were promised that kings would come from their line. So we read these kinds of things in this chapter. We would be right to ask, is this the one who is to come? 
or should we expect another? Is Joseph this king who will come? Now, interestingly, as a side note, the language of the brothers bowing down three times before Joseph corresponds to historical reality. We'll see later in this narrative that when the brothers do meet Joseph, guess how many times they bow down before him? Three times. They bow down before him three times. This dream, these dreams, these prophecies come true to the exact detail. <coughs> so underneath the contrast with Joseph, the righteous one, and these brothers, the unrighteous ones, underneath that contrast is this broader theme in Genesis of kingship, of God sending the, the promised seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of the serpent, a ser serpent and be a king for his people and a king over creation. Joseph, Moses is setting up Joseph as this one, this one who anticipates a kingly son who will be loved by his father but hated by his brothers through no fault of his own and who will nonetheless rule and reign over creation. That's number one, dreaming Joseph. Number two, scheming brothers. Let's see the scheming brothers in 12 through 36. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of, the hand, out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his, blo conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let, a, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat 
and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph's scheming brothers aren't on board with this idea of Joseph as king. Instead of a coronation, they start to plan a murder. The hatred in their hearts toward Joseph starts to spill out and they concoct a plan to kill him. Did you hear just how much they, des they despised him at the end of verse 20? Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Do you hear? Do you hear the venom in their voice? We'll see what that dreamer will do. We'll see about his dreams after we cut his throat and watch him bleed. The kind of anger that brings you to this, the kind of hatred that brings you to this kind of place is deep and dark and evil and wicked. And these are his brothers. These are his brothers. Now, as we saw, the brothers aren't all on the same page as to what to do with Joseph and how to do it. But they all hated Joseph. We'll learn as the story plays out that Joseph's brothers are at varying levels of bloodthirstiness. Some have had it with him and are ready for blood. Others don't like him, but aren't quite as violently inclined. Which, by the way, just because you don't kill someone doesn't mean you aren't harming them in significant ways. Can't you kill with your words, husbands? Can't we kill with our actions? Mm. There's so much hatred in them that they want nothing more to do with this brother, this favored brother. But when Joseph finds these guys, he's kind of this unassuming 17-year-old boy who's just out on an errand for his dad, looking for the brothers, making sure they're okay. He finds them, not knowing that they collectively want to kill him. Now that phrase in verse 20, come now, let us kill him. Does that phrase sound familiar? little Bible trivia, I didn't know this. That phrase is only used one other place in the Bible. When this, the, the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament is translated to Greek, that Greek phrase is used in the Greek New Testament in Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants. You might remember that, Matthew 21, Jesus tells the story of the landowner who leases out his land. He sends messengers back to that land to check on the land, but the messengers are beaten and beaten and then killed. So then the owner says, okay, I'll send my beloved son because surely they won't harm my beloved son. But guess what happens to the beloved son? He also gets killed by those tenants. 
But when they see, the, in the parable, when they see the beloved son approaching, Jesus, as he tells the story, used the exact same phrase. Those wicked tenants say, come now, let us kill him. Let us kill him. Jesus alluding to this narrative. Jesus, I would argue, connecting himself to Joseph's life and his story. So some of these brothers are ready for blood. Then two of the brothers appear to stick up for Joseph. First, there's Reuben <clears throat> there in verse 21. When Reuben, he's the firstborn, when he hears it, he rescues him out of their hands saying, no, 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 let's not kill him. Don't shed blood. Let's just throw him in, into this pit. But I'm kind of thinking, what did you want to do after that? Throw him in the pit for a while, like a timeout? You know? Is he going to go get him later and then let him go? It doesn't tell us. But he, at least in the moment, doesn't want to kill him. <clears throat> He's the firstborn. He's the oldest son who, back in th chapter 35, 35, had disqualified himself from kingship through improper relationship with one of his dad's wives. But here he's suggesting not killing Joseph, only throwing him into a pit. Maybe he's trying to get back in the good graces of his father. We're not sure. The only thing we know for sure is that his, <clears throat> his plan doesn't work. His plan is ineffectual. He's not capable of leading his brothers. So then we come to Je uh, Judah. There's Reuben who suggests another plan. Then there's Judah, verse 26. Judah says to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill him, he can sell his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon us. Or excuse me, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. You almost, you almost hear sympathy. He's our brother, guys. He's our own flesh. We don't need to kill him. But what we can do is sell him and make some money. Better plan but still evil. Amen? <laughs> was Judah trying to save Joseph's life or was he just trying to make a, make a buck? Probably both. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. At the very least, he wasn't trying to do the right thing and just simply save Joseph and rescue Joseph and do right by Joseph. He was still trying to use Joseph for a selfish end. <clears throat> and the brothers, interestingly, the brothers follow the fourthborn's plan. Judah's the fourthborn. These traders pass by, they raise him up out of the pit, and they sell him to the traders, like Judah had suggested. Verse 25, though, it's this heartless picture. I don't want you to miss this little detail that Moses throws in. They put him in the pit. This is before Judah puts his plan out there. Skip this. Then they sat down to eat. Then they sat down to eat. Now, when you sit down to eat, usually you've finished what you're doing and you are ready to focus on a meal, enjoy a meal with friends or family. Usually if something's raging inside of you or things are going bad, you don't like sit down and enjoy a meal. These guys are so hardened that they sit down and enjoy a meal while their brother is in a pit nearby. And later in the narrative, Chapter 42, 21, we learn that Joseph, while he's in the pit, he's weeping and calling out for his life. Maybe they heard it, maybe they didn't. Likely they did, I think. So there they are, sitting around the campfire, 
enjoying a meal while their brother is over in a hole in the ground, which the pit, by the way, is a cistern or a well that was dry. Didn't have water and it was a dry. So it was just a big hole in the ground. It was deep and dark, dank, scary. Scorpions. There he is in there weeping and calling out for his life. And they're sitting around eating tacos like it's Tuesday afternoon. Do you see how hard their hearts are? They're just going on with their life. Talking about probably what they need to do next. These guys were thinking about murdering their brother. Then they decide to sell him into slavery instead. Knowing that if they did that, they will never see him again. Aware that they're taking away from their father, his beloved, who would also never see him again. And they sat around and ate like nothing had happened. Now as the narrative starts to conclude, Joseph is carried away by these people called Ishmaelites and Midianites. It's likely that these peoples were intermarrying, so they're both basically the same people who, by the way, these people in previous episodes in Genesis are, are classified as the seed of the serpent. They're not part of the chosen people of God. So we might say that the chosen one is carried away, the seed of the woman is carried away by the seed of the serpent. And all but dead. Do you notice that detail about the shekels, the 20 shekels of silver? Judah says, that we should sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Does that remind you of anyone else who was sold for shekels of silver? 30? Jesus. And who did the selling? Judah. Another name for Judas. Also connecting Joseph to our Lord Jesus. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. He goes to Egypt which means that's a long ways away in that day of time, you know. Now it's not. We could even now be in Egypt by tonight probably. But that for them meant that they will never see this guy again, ever. So they decide to come up with a plan to explain what happened to their father in verses 31 through 33. And their plan is deceptive in a very Jacob-like way. Their plan, of course, is to take Joseph's robe, slaughter a goat, dip it in blood, and then take the tattered and torn and bloody robe back to their father and say that a wild animal must have killed Joseph. Deceiving their father in a Jacob-like way. Just as Jacob deceived his father with goat skin, so now his children are deceiving him by taking Joseph's robe and dipping it in the blood of a goat. And so the story ends with Jacob holding this tattered and bloodied robe saying surely it is without doubt that he is torn to pieces. Parents can you imagine it's bad enough if your child dies but then visualizing your child being torn to pieces by a wild animal and Joseph, excuse me, Jacob just sits there and he weeps and he mourns. He refuses to be comforted for days. Joseph is dead. 
in his mind. Joseph is in the pit of death. Now Moses, let's land the plane. Moses is a literary genius. I keep bringing this up because it's true. Moses is a literary genius. Like Moses didn't sit down and write Genesis like in some random quiet time, you know. Like this is a work of art. The Pentateuch. These are Holy Spirit inspired words written by a man named Moses raised in Pharaoh's palace who was a literary genius. He's writing these words that then shape the rest of what we read in the Old Testament and the Bible. And undoubtedly, these words and these stories and these phrases and these events impacted the minds of the other authors of the Old Testament. Minds like Isaiah's, for example. So we read, Justin read for us, Isaiah 53 earlier, about the servant of the Lord who will be wounded and pierced, who will die. So even if Isaiah isn't directly quoting something Moses wrote here in this Joseph narrative, the impress of these stories has so shaped his mind that everything he says is being filtered through that. For example, Isaiah said that like a, the servant of the Lord, like a sheep before its shearers is what? Silent. So is the servant as he's led to death. Who also was totally silent in this narrative? Who is totally silent when his brothers are scheming and plotting and deciding what to do with him? Joseph. Joseph says nothing as they scheme to kill him. Like a lamb before his shearers, Joseph was silent. Joseph is like the servant of the Lord, the innocent, humble son who's killed by his brothers without cause. Thrown into a pit. In verse 24, it says that. It's used that word a lot, by the way. Maybe you noticed that. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. When we read that word pit in Scripture, like Psalm 30 that Jared read earlier, the beginning of the service, Psalm 30 refers to the pit that we often find ourselves in. But when that word is used, it's referring to Sheol or death or the grave. The pit isn't just a cistern. The pit isn't just a hole. It's not just a a literal place in the earth. The pit is the place of death. So it's like Joseph has died when they throw him in the pit. Jacob, as I said, certainly thinks he's dead. Interesting later, we'll get there in like eight weeks, when Joseph is found in Egypt and his brothers report back to Jacob, the first words out of the brothers' mouths to their father is, Joseph, excuse me, is not, Joseph is reigning over Egypt. Rather, their first words are, Joseph is alive. So they knew that he was not dead because they had sold him. But the narrative is trying, Moses is trying and helping us see that there's a sort of death that has happened with Joseph. He is in the pit. He is in Sheol. He's in the grave. He's as good as dead, even if he's not literally dead. As we'll see in the weeks to come, Joseph's story is not just a story of descending into the pit of death, 
but also a story of ascending up from the pit of death and what we might call a glorious resurrection. Joseph's story begins with dreams of a king and ends with a father weeping over his son who he thinks is slain. But little does Jacob know at the beginning that a resurrection is coming for Joseph. And so it is, brothers and sisters, so it is for the people of God. So it is for the people of God. Our life is filled with longings for another world. And we often feel like death is our only end. But the good news of the gospel and what's suggested and anticipated in this narrative is that for those who are in Christ and those who stay the course with Christ, a resurrection is coming. That the pit isn't the end of the story. That all those who put their hope in Christ and turn away from their sins will leave this sad world and live in a new world with no more sin, no more Satan, no more death. We will live and rule and reign with our shepherd king, Jesus Christ, for innumerable ages in a kingdom where there is no more favoritism, no more murder, no more rivalry, no more scheming, no more sadness, no more anger, no more darkness, no more pits. The hope of the people of God is that though we find ourselves in the pit of death and despair and sin and Satan's grasp, that resurrection is coming. That resurrection is coming. That resurrection is coming. This hope sustains us and rescues us from any and every pit we are in. Whether we've chosen to crawl into those pits or been cast into them. And as the psalmist says, Jared read earlier, Psalm 30. O Lord, this is the hope of the people of God. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored, to, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Friends, all those who die the death of repentance dying to themselves and their abilities to save themselves, those who die the death of repentance and put their hope in Christ will rise. Weeping in darkness in the pit does not have to be the end of your story. There can be joy in your mourning. If you'd like to know more about what it means to have this hope in Christ, talk to me afterwards or the person sitting next to you, the person who you came with. We'd love to talk more with you about what it means to have this hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please take your word. Use it to encourage and increase our hope in Christ. I pray, Father, that the story of Joseph would uh, instruct our minds and inform our minds how we think about the gospel, how we think about what you've done for us, and that we wouldn't just have new thoughts, but we'd also have new loves, new joy, new worship, new rest in you, new hope. Father, may the hope of the gospel 
the hope that we can come up out of the pit. We can be raised up. We can be resurrected in and through Christ and Christ alone. That we can have joy in the morning. Lord, may this hope sustain us and refresh us in the days ahead. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.